Welcome to The Observer Effect, a podcast of travel stories. Each week we hope to bring you a conversation with someone we meet overseas, and at least one good story. Episode 111, Stolpoldrai de Harn, Ilpendam, where Jeanette remains a geographer. Once, in the middle of the night, just outside Amsterdam, I lifted the latch of the door on the barn where I was sleeping, slunk past the handsome golden retriever named Brum, and walked away into the fields to lie down on a dike and look at the sky. I counted 16 shooting stars through the mist. To look at the stars always makes me dream, Van Gogh wrote to his brother, as simply as I dream over the black dots of a map. First of all, can you describe yourself? What do you look like? What I look like? Yes. Okay. <laughs> well, I'm a, a woman in her 60s. It doesn't look it, by the way. <laughs> Thank you very much. Like everybody, like most women, I'm vain as well. So that means my hair is not gray. <laughs> And I try to make something of myself, doing gymnastics every day, for That's example. Right. Yeah. So I'm, uh, I, I'm not fat. Mm-hmm. Uh, I can move around quite well, and that is necessary, living in the house where I live. Otherwise, that would hardly be possible. Mm. Um, then um, it's difficult to describe yourself only in looks but it's easier to do it in the functions that you have. Mm-hmm. So I'm a mother of two daughters, mm-hmm. grown-up daughters. One has two children herself, the other has a lot of horses. Um, both have partners. Myself, I'm living more or less with my second partner, but that is a very much uh, what we call a traffic light situation. <laughs> what, what, it goes on and off. <laughs> Mm-hmm. So that means that I, more than the others, 
was able to to function under her yeah. because we had to adapt to her. But that means also I learned a lot. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, so I think that that is certainly one of the reasons why I can manage a house, a big house, a large household where many things are going on yeah. without a lot of trouble. And can you describe this beautiful place? I like the way you introduced it to us when we yeah. arrived here. Uh, where where are we right now? So the house where I live in and where the bed and breakfast is situated in is an old farm. It's called a Stolpboerderij in Dutch. Mm -hmm. Stolp is a word that you can also find in the German and also I think in the Scandinavian languages because it means something that covers and protects. Mm. And um, that is exactly what the roof of this farm is doing, more than a normal roof would be. The, the roof of a stolboerderij looks like a pyramid. Mm. And the walls are not very high under it. Mm -hmm. And it is a very high pyramid. This one is about 16 meters, I think. Yeah. Um, normally, or originally, such a farm, it's a farm, was meant to, for cows and it is so high because the haystack was situated in the center of that farm. Mm. And uh, that, that had to do, of course, with the very wet Dutch climate. Mm. And certainly here in this area, which is just above Amsterdam, um, it, it is a very wet area. It, and it was more wet than, than Holland, which is a wet country anyway. Yeah. But it was more wet because it was surrounded by two seas. Mm. One was the North Zee, that's still there. Mm -hmm. The other one, the Zuider Zee, at the other side, um, which is now called het IJsselmeer. It's called a lake now, because in the 30s a big dike was built that connected one part of the Netherlands to the other part, to the northern part, Friesland. And that's, that, that, that was done, of course, for protective reasons. Mm. This whole area is and was, in fact, um, built out of a swamp. The whole western part of the Netherlands was one big swamp very unattractive to live in. Mm. I think I also told you about the Romans who, who in fact hardly ever came here because they hated this country. Yeah. And that a, a certain Roman historian described this land as a miserable land with, with very pitiful people <laughs> who lived on hates that they had built themselves because the sea, or the ocean as they called it, came in twice a day and <laughs> that they had to go for their miserable existence and their awful food, <laughs> struggling through the mud and finding fish and probably things in shelves, etc. And that was their, their miserable existence. I, so, I couldn't disagree more. <laughs> <laughs> but that was how the Romans saw it. Yeah, yeah. And you, you should realize that um, during those days, and I'm talking now about, let's say, the first few hundred years of our modern area, so mm. from the year zero to maybe 300, um, there were no dikes here. Mm. Yeah. And 
uh, this this landscape, as you have seen it now, actually came into existence in all the centuries after that. Mm. Probably we can. It, it was already a little bit before the year thousand, but um, I like to 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 say okay from the year thousand on, people learned how to control the water levels in this swampy area and that was needed to develop it a little bit, to use it for agriculture. Mm -hmm. So there were people living but very rare and for a long time, I think, even during the Middle Ages, so the 13th, 14th century, it was known only as a very dangerous area where outlaws were living mm. because nobody could find them here. It mm. was all um, a bit wooded, not with big trees, but with, with the kind of trees yeah. that can stand high water levels. Yeah. So willows and what we call elves and um, yeah. birches, these kind of trees can stand a high water level. And a lot of reed. Mm. And so it was easy for outlaws to uh, hide in, in areas like this. Yeah. And there were some tracks through it, but they were very dangerous because, of course, you risk to be robbed by the outlaws. <laughs> So that then gradually uh, people learn to master this the, the, the water level and to do something with the land and make very small little polders. A polder means that the water level is regulated. Yeah, yeah. It's not exactly the same as what we call a droogmakerij. And that is what I showed you on the map. Mm -hmm. On the map you see these large areas, a bit like egg forms. Yeah. And they were all former lakes. Mm. And those lakes came into existence because in a swamp peat grows and the people used that for fire. Yeah. And uh, that made, of course, the, the, the whole soil very weak. So water came up as soon as you removed the peat. <laughs> Small lakes came into existence with a storm. It became bigger yeah. and the lakes became bigger and bigger. And small villages came into existence on the edge of maybe a road and a lake. Yeah. Small dikes came into existence to protect the land a little bit. But when then finally the, the villages and the small towns that all lived from fisheries, some agriculture and some merchandise. Um, but finally when Amsterdam had outgrown the rest, because first for a number of reasons it became more successful than the others, mm -hmm. um, gradually Amsterdam entered its so-called golden age, the 17th century. Mm -hmm. Then the, the technical know-how uh, was far enough developed and the money was there because Amsterdam really became rich. Mm -hmm. And that is the moment when the Amsterdam merchants decided to empty the lakes. Mm. And they became droogmakerijen, mm. which means land, uh, yeah, um, land that is made dry, a droogmakerij. Yeah. Land that is made dry. And so these, these, these um, lakes were really very large. And they were also deeper than one mill, and that is course very important they had to do it with windmills anything else was not possible yeah so with the windmills they dried the lakes they emptied the lakes in canals that were 
constructed around the lakes. So you needed two dikes, canal, and then you and, and, and windmills, and then you could start pumping with the windmills. But of course, one windmill could only bring water one meter high. Mm. So uh, most of the time, they they needed a number of windmills in a row mm -hmm. to really empty the lake because most of the lakes were at least four meters, sometimes deeper. Mm -hmm. So you needed four windmills yeah. in a row with a piece of water in between, and then next windmill. In Dutch, it's called a molengam, mm. and you can see the most beautiful version of that in Kinderdijk. But you also, and that's South Holland, Southern Holland. Yeah. Um, but you have also in North Beemster or Schermer, one of the droogmakerijen here, a bit more to the north. You can still find examples of of the molengam. Yeah. And and so that is why we like to say. Um, God created the world, but the Dutch created the Netherlands. <laughs> and there's a lot of truth in that. <laughs> because this land is really man-made. Yeah. Most can. of it. Yeah. Uh, hmm. And then about this, the farm. Yeah, yeah. Um, these stolpboerderijen, this model, mm -hmm. um, came into existence in that same area. Mm. So in the 17th century, the design for the Stolpboerderij was made, it was very modern, mm. and as I remember well, I think the typical Stolpboerderij, Stolp farm, was for 16 cows. 16 <laughs> cows, a haystack, a farmer's family. Wow. And, um, and then, of course, the, the land that they had was nothing compared with what, what we consider to be necessary for a modern farm. Mm. And many of these stolboerderijen were also vaarboerderijen, and that means that such a farm had to transport the cows over the water to their land. Mm. The land was not close to the farm, it was mostly for heritage reasons scattered through mm. the area, mm. and there was a lot of water in the area, so the, the ways of transport was do it via water. So the farmer had to bring the cows in spring to the meadows and then in autumn back, but because they were kept here not for meat but for milk, he had to go there by boat twice a day mm -hmm. to milk them. What a life. Yeah. So different from yeah. our yeah. life. So do you know how old this This particular house is? Yeah. Is, is a bit over a century old, as far as we know. Yeah, yeah. So not very old. Mm -hmm. Most likely it is built on the fundaments of another stop boerderij. Yeah, yeah. Because the village of Ilpendam, where we are, mm -hmm. meaning a dam in the small river ah. Ilp, and Ilp means willow. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> but there's a very small more creek yeah, yeah. coming from, uh, from the swamp. That is still there, the part of that swamp is still there, it's called the Ilperveld. Yeah. Lots of willows, Ilp. Yeah. And so that came here and, and ended in what was then called the Permer Lake. Wow. And that's now called the Permer Droogmakerij. Yeah, yeah. And so it ended there, and uh, very often at such uh, a point they built, a, they built a, a dam just to make sure that there would be no floods, etc. And then a village came into existence. So this village is 
probably has its beginnings in the 13th century, mm. maybe a bit older. Yeah. yeah. I think I know the answer to this question because yeah. I asked already right away yeah. when you told me all this before, but for the sake of the listeners, yeah. how do you know all this and how are you oh, so yeah. eloquent <laughs> uh, speaking about all this? Well, of course I had my education in the right direction. I'm a geographer and I studied uh, at the University of Utrecht, geography, yeah, yeah. and I taught geography for a number of years. It's not what I did all my life. I stopped already during my early 30s mm. teaching, mm. did many other things as well. But I've always uh, kept my love for, for the landscape and for geography in general. For me, geography is not knowing about places that in town and where they are situated, mm -hmm. but is about the existence of the landscape, reading the landscape. That is, for me, geography. Tell me more. <laughs> <laughs> um, it is... Um, when I explain to you about the, the levels of the, in hate that you have here in, yeah. the, in the area, when you enter this, this part called Waterland, um, like many parts of Western Holland, you think, oh, this is very flat. Mm. You see a very flat country. Mm. Until you take a bicycle and start cycling around. And then you notice that it may be flat, but there are differences in height. Yeah. Yeah. And when you know a little bit about the history, you, you, you suddenly start to understand the landscape. Yeah. Because if you, I think you did that, you take your, the bike and you, you, you cycle out of the, the, the small dike that we, we are situated on and cross the bridge, yeah. you, you have crossed a canal and suddenly the road goes down. Yeah. It's not like the Rocky Mountains, <laughs> but it's four or five meters. Yeah, yeah. And if you look around, you see that in fact, uh, that that whole part of the landscape looks like a saucer. Yeah. And so if you realize that, and you know about the Droogmakerijen, yeah. you can read the landscape. If you come somewhere else, and you see similar things, you start thinking, ah, probably this was the same kind of thing. Yeah. Especially when you know how typical for a Droogmakerij is a circular canal, because they had to pump the water somewhere, yeah. and these typical farms are also belong to, to this region. So what I like is to be there, look at the landscape, and to realize what the history of the landscape is. Would you believe, in all the time that I've been doing these interviews, collecting these stories about travel, you're the first geographer that I've met? Oh, really? <laughs> you have no idea how exciting that is for me. But <laughs> <laughs> you're a historian, aren't you? Uh, yeah, yeah, of, yeah. of sorts. <laughs> but there is, but there but is. There's a connection. For yeah, sure. there is a connection. There is absolutely a connection. I, yeah. I, you know, my aspiration is to be a writer. That's. Yeah. That's my dream, and so yeah. that's why I collect these stories. And ah, yeah. people, you know, think about stories in different ways, and they find stories in different places. So it's exciting yeah. to hear you describe, you know, the story of the the land. Yeah. And uh, I'm thinking of Van Gogh, of course. Uh, I hope to go back to the museum mm -hmm. after this, mm -hmm. and uh, mm -hmm. his interaction with the landscape. Um, as soon as I came here, I was struck by how much like 
the paintings I've seen, this landscape looks. I, I feel like painters here really interacted with this yeah. land. Painters and the Netherlands belong together. Yeah, yeah. Um, it is often said that it has to do with the special light yeah. that is here, and yeah. and especially in this region. Yeah. And that that is then explained again because there's a lot of moisture. Yeah. Of course, there are no mountains, yeah. so you see a lot of sky. Yeah. Clouds are defining this landscape. The clouds are differently shaped, so maybe it's my imagination, yeah. but no, they are. And then they're lit differently. Yeah. I mean. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That, and that has everything to do with how the, the atmosphere is um, composed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so when there's a lot of moisture in it, and no mountains to, to prevent the lights to, to enter, and then these clouds that come in from the west mostly, the west and the northwest from the sea, yeah. and then the other sea that also gives moisture, yeah. which is now the lake, yeah. That, that that explains a lot about a very special Dutch light. There have been films made about Dutch light. Yeah. And it is the reason why, especially in the time of the Impressionist painting, painters, mm -hmm. they all came to this region mm -hmm. because of that special light. Because then uh, uh, they were, and you had to print a list, all the different styles that belong to the, the Impressionistic um, wave. Yeah. Um, and they, so they loved the light here. Yeah, yeah. There's one quite interesting um, hotel restaurant in Volendam. Mm. Um, it's called, uh, what is it called? Spiker, I think. There, that exists already for quite a long time. And a lot of painters came there and stayed there. But as you know, painters, painters should be very poor <laughs> during the lifetime, <laughs> and they were. Yeah, yeah. So they, they paint very often with paintings. Yeah, yeah. And so this hotel is filled oh, with paintings yeah. from that time. I wish I had known. Okay, we have yeah. to come back. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, so it's not the food that makes it special, but it is the painting. <laughs> <laughs> yes. So, uh, why? you become a geographer? Why were you drawn to that profession? Um, well, I cannot say that it was a choice that was very much like um, my biggest wish. No, I was always very interested in farming. Mm -hmm. And I had been thinking about being a veterinarian, mm -hmm. but I wasn't strong enough for that. <laughs> and um, uh, so, I yeah. The reason why I I did that is I wanted to I wanted to having to do something with the earth more the earth not especially nature. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Then I could have studied biology, but mm -hmm. the earth and the way people are using it. Mm -hmm. At that time, I was not so much aware, consciously consciously aware of how much we are destroying. Mm. Although I was aware because I've been growing up in the polders around Rotterdam mm -hmm. and Rotterdam during the 50s and the 60s was developing incredibly fast. And um, although our house was situated in a very nice area, I remember how, how, how painful it was when another polder was covered with sand for a new 
and putting a new quarter to rebuild. Mm. And I loved the polders as they were. Yeah. And even worse was, of course, the area that they call Europort. Yeah. Where all the oil factories were situated. It also was a bit fascinating. The, the big ships were fascinating. The harbor was fascinating. It was at that time the largest harbor in the world. Yeah. But for me, I thought the, the when we not very often, but sometimes went to that area that I found it like hell. And um, it was it was one of the reasons why later <coughs> I became more and more interested in. Uh, the whole sustainability of everything, yeah. more and more worried about it, and it is one of the reasons why I am with my second partner, mm. who is uh, one of the, within um, the Dutch European context, uh, one of the first environmentalists. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And um, uh, so that really that that really belongs and, and is very close to my. Own original interest yeah. to protect what I love, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and that is beautiful landscape. The I love human beings, but but I've never considered them to be very superior to the rest yeah. of the living creatures. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I think that is a, a, a very big mistake that we make. Yeah. And that we should be a lot more modest in that direction. Absolutely. Yeah. So. So that's that's one the connection with Earth. That is why I study to 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 study geography. Yeah. Yeah. It would it be more interesting to to do it today? Because when I started, it, GPS was not there. Mm, right. And now it is, and that gives a lot of new possibilities. Yeah. But I used it later because. Uh, I was, I was, <coughs> I think it's too much to explain everything I did in life, but uh, in the last 20 years I returned to, to geography yeah. and um, uh, and mostly then to agriculture, saline agriculture, yeah. bio-saline agriculture. And um, yeah, it, it really, it really helps that there's GPS. If the, in the, we did a number of projects also in uh, in, in collaboration with with uh, agriculture institutes in India, Pakistan, Bangladesh, Dubai, the arid countries where salinity is more urgent than somewhere else. And uh, and of course the new methods really help. Yeah, yeah. To to build systems, to systems to, that help you to understand what's happening and what potentials there might be and certainly will not be. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so that's that I, sometimes I wished I I would have studied geography in these those days now. Right. right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well this brings up kind of the end of the interview. Uh, I always so the the theme of the interview is how travel changes people. Mm -hmm. You know? And you mentioned several other countries there. So um, I'm curious, have you traveled much in the way of geography, or has that led you to focus on this More. particular place? Or the funny thing is, um, 
when I started geography, uh, it was the thing to do to go to Africa and start developing mm, yeah, yeah. Uh, the African countries. And um, I never wanted to do that. I've always believed that um, the solution for the African countries has to be found here mm, mm. by us, mm. and as far as we can contribute to that. Yeah. And that, that it is um, hubris mm. to go there and tell them what to do. And I still feel that very strong. Nevertheless, um, when I started to work in biocene and agriculture, the the push of the work led me to a number of countries. Yeah. And it only confirmed my belief. So I've been a lot in Mexico, northwestern Mexico, mm-hmm. um, where we collaborated with, um, especially with with one Mexican that I still go to quite often, José yeah. Ramón Noriega, um, and um, well, we tried to develop a number of projects. I must say I learned an enormous amount of these kind of things, but it confirmed me in, in my belief that coming from abroad you cannot really contribute much, yeah. because you really have to understand. The, the country. When you start living somewhere, then maybe you can really contribute. Yeah. But um, so it is against my my whole f- whole whole belief in um, in well as, as what I just explained to go somewhere as for example an engineering um, office and say okay we we are these are methods here we go. Have <laughs> technology, etc., etc. I think yeah. we, I think we ruined many things doing that. Yeah, yeah. And that it does not really contribute to the development of countries in general. Mm-hmm. So of course that is not. Uh, I think the whole development aid has changed a lot, and that this conviction is now quite widespread. Yeah, yeah. And um, um, so, so uh, what I still do. I still collaborate with people in northwestern Mexico, mm-hmm. trying to develop markets for the products, but the markets are here. Yeah. And other markets are there, but that is what they have to do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that is so my traveling has therefore, and also for reasons of health, be confined to well, the United States, Mexico, Asia. Uh, I've never been in Africa except for the Cap Verdean Islands. And so it's not that I travel the whole world. Mm. It's also not my wish to see the whole world. Yeah, yeah. Because, um, of course, when you see the beautiful areas, etc., who wouldn't like to see them? Mm -hmm. But um, I've always like more to be somewhere and have something to do than being a traveler just for traveling. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which seems to be a, a little bit contradictory to <laughs> to the idea that uh, you shouldn't go there and tell people what to do, but you can work somewhere yeah. together with others. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, on projects that, that mean something for both areas mm. and not having the idea of I've come here to develop them. Right, right. So that um, so, so being there and having something to do, 
And that is something I always liked. And it learns you a lot about the country. Yeah. And so I always prefer to be somewhere a bit longer mm -hmm. and not travel like this. In yeah. Not like the Americans. Like, like us. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, yeah. I completely agree with you. Mm -hmm. uh, well, you were staying in Spain for quite some time, I think. Well, we lived in Korea for three years and China for one year. Yeah. And oh yeah, China. I visited China as well. Yeah. 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 <laughs> I, I think it is better to stay in, yeah. in one place and try to put down roots. Roots are always better. Yeah. You have more understanding the longer you're there. Yeah. And yeah. I struggle with the, the tension between that desire and the fact that there are so many places and people to yeah. see and meet, you know? Yeah. But yeah. So, can you tell me a good travel story? Have Has anything that has happened to you overseas changed you? Oh, everything has changed me. <laughs> um... There are several stories, of course. One small story has to do with development aid. Yeah, yeah. Um, I was in India, um, where we did a more scientific project together with um, the Agriculture Institute of Karnal, mm. which is 120 kilometers north of Delhi. Mm. And they have been working with a, a certain kind of salinity there in the area and done uh, and have many experiences. And so uh, we went to, f to, to visit a couple of uh, pilot areas mm. for trees. We were the whole, the whole project that we did, paid by the, the EU, um, was about uh, trees that can grow in saline circumstances. And so this the particular institute had quite some experience in doing that, etc. They, they just had developed, together with the water department of that region, uh, another pilot, also subsidized, mm -hmm. um, to prevent the water level to come up too high, because that is one of the reasons that salinity occurs. Mm. And in that particular area, salinity was occurring, and so now they had um, done an experiment with trees, mm. trees that used a lot of water, mm. can ha could handle salinity. Um, I think it were eucalyptus trees, mm. because they can do that. And that they, they would function as natural pumps. Mm -hmm. And it was really a successful project, because the harvest of the farmers that were participating uh, had increased with 25%, something like that. So very good. Yeah. So we were walking around and the farmers were there too. And so I asked via an interpreter, um, those farmers, okay, this is really a successful project. Now, if you would ask to be asked to, to invest something, eh, somehow, to, to do this yourself, would you do that? And he looked very surprised. No, we would never do that. This has to be subsidized. It has to be paid by development yeah. aid. Yeah. Otherwise, they would never do it, even if the increase of the harvest had been so very, very clear. Yeah. And that was an eye-opener to me. Yeah. 
because it's it really underlined what some development organizations had already told me is that the people's attitude had changed in a negative way because of development aid yeah yeah so that's a story that yeah, answers yeah. your question I absolutely think. absolutely yeah. yeah yeah so that uh yeah there are other things as well things that we lived through in mexico and the beautiful story is also when i visited my uncle at the cape verdean islands but that is more because my uncle was such a very special person <laughs> <laughs> And that is a new story. I wish I could <laughs> interview him. He's dead now. <laughs> so that is absolutely impossible. <laughs> but he was a wonderful uncle to have. <laughs> yeah, yeah. He was a traveler. Yeah. Yeah. And an uh, well, adventurer. <laughs> well, thank you so much for taking the time and, and for hosting us so well and for sharing the story and for speaking English. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much, Jeanette, for talking with me and for being such an incredible host. For everyone listening, if you go to Amsterdam, consider staying in the village of Ilpendam with Jeanette. You can find her wonderful home listed on Airbnb and on our webpage. You should also look into her project, Ocean Desert Food, whose mission is to produce and sell products from arid and saline environments for human and animal consumption. The products are based on the salt-tolerant and halophytic species that are able to grow in these environments. They are produced in a sustainable way and according to biological principles from the website. You can learn more at that website, oasefoundation.eu, oasefoundation.eu. Thank you also to Dana Boulay for her music, and thank you for listening.